All right. Announcements in stereo. I feel like if I try that, it's going to come out like Gollum and Schmeagle. And it's like, going to be weird. Well, hey, um, that was a Lord of the Rings reference for those of you who didn't get it. So, All right. Hey, uh, would you turn in your Bible to John chapter 4? John chapter 4. It's in the New Testament after, Act, after Luke, before Acts. John chapter 4. And as you're turning there, I just have to jump off of what Michelle uh, Winter spoke this morning about the community art project. What a beautiful picture of what God does in community, weaving our stories together with his story of redemption. You know, that is actually just like what we are about here. And one of the ways that we live that value out from the core is community groups. And and we are launching into a new season, a new semester of community groups starting really this next week. So if you haven't connected yet with a community or community group, would you see Heather out in the lobby at the lobby table or also uh, fill one of these bad boys out there in the pew in front of you? And I'm new here card. And just to check that you are interested in a community group. Also, if you are new here, we would just love to know that you're here so you could fill that out too. That doesn't automatically mean that you're committing to being in a community group. You can just say, hey, I'm here. I want you to know it. So uh, I'm Pastor Matt. I'm glad you are here. If you are new, we are finishing a teaching series this morning on worship. You may have guessed from the giant word above us this morning. And uh, it has been a great series. It's been great to hear Pastor Dave sharing his heart on worship, uh, talking about how God has called us to be worshipers of him in all of life. Really, the, the, the question that worship is asking us is, who is God in my life? What's ultimate in my life? What is of supreme worth to me? Well, if we're honest, and I think we should be, worship is a challenging topic for us. It is a challenging thing for us because when we get it right, it leads and propels us forward in passionate service of Jesus, But when worship gets bent off track, when we end up messing up our worship, it has disastrous effects. Frankly, worship is a dynamic that we need to constantly cultivate and pay attention to in our hearts. Uh, last week, Pastor David talked about Exodus 15. It was this moment, moment where Moses and Miriam do their like tambourine worship thing. Remember this story after God in Exodus 14 had delivered the people of Israel from 400 years of slavery. You recalling this? Okay. Uh, and, 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 and we talked about this amazing moment of worship and praise, but I can't help but notice that 17 chapters later in the narrative in Exodus 32, that same community gets bored. They're waiting for Moses to come back with a word from God down the mountain, Mount Sinai. They say, hey, Aaron, our priest, we have gold jewelry we would like you to make into a golden calf. So we have something to worship. And so they worship this golden calf that they make from their jewelry and they ascribe to it the very work of redemption that Yahweh, the living God, had just done in their lives. They got bored and worship got derailed for them. And the truth is, friends, that if we are not careful, 
we are in the same boat. Because 10 minutes after our gathering, some of us will be arguing with our spouses over where to eat because we have replaced God with something more important to us, which is time or money or food. Two hours after our gathering, some of you will be more emotional, more energetic, more enthusiastic over who wins a game than you were here over the ultimate victory of God over the power of evil and sin and death in the world. Worship is challenging for us, is it not? And so the question today is, how do we keep our worship on track? How do we fuel the fire of worship aimed at Yahweh, the living God, all the time? How do we remain attentive to what worship is and how to do it? And the answer to the question is here in John chapter 4 with a conversation between Jesus and a woman from the place called Samaria. Now, let me bring you up to speed. Jesus is initiating a conversation with a woman he has zero business relating to religiously and culturally. It is a significant no-no for a male Jewish rabbi to engage with and interact with a woman from Samaria. Centuries of racial tension have existed between Jews and Samaritans. The Samaritans reject Two-thirds of the Jewish scriptures, they believe in the Torah, the, the five books of Moses, but they reject the writings and the prophets, the rest of what makes up your Old Testament. And not only that, they reject Jerusalem and the temple at Jerusalem and the, the, the commands of God to worship there. And so it is an utter scandal for Jesus to engage her. And yet, this is the perfect context to talk about worship, because... It, This kind of scandal is exactly the kind of scandal that we find in the gospel. Where the holy comes to the unholy. Where the clean infects what's unclean. Where righteousness infects unrighteousness. And where life comes to death and reverses its effects. Where in the words of John's prologue to his gospel, he says, The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And so Jesus asks for water because he's thirsty and he's human. And in shock, she replies, you, a Jew, would ask me, a Samaritan woman, for water? And yet Jesus just says to her, if you knew the gift of God and with whom you were speaking, you would ask for living water. I would give it to you. Living water is this metaphor in the Old Testament and all throughout John for the Holy Spirit, the saving, ongoing presence of God in our lives, the gift of God, the source of eternal life. And Jesus says, whoever drinks it won't thirst again. They will have an eternal resource of soul nourishment. She doesn't get it. She says, I want in on that. I am tired of coming back to this well. I want to dr- I want the kind of water that makes me not have to keep doing this work. And Jesus uses physical words to point to spiritual realities and so he calls her to uh he tells her to call her husband. He catches her in something. She's stopped in her tracks. 
because she knows that the woman, the man he's, she's living with now isn't her husband. And in fact, she's had five husbands. She's on the wrong side of the tracks culturally, religiously, and morally. In other words, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I see you and I know your story and I know your thirst. You go from man to man to man finding fulfillment and you can't find fulfillment. I see your spiritual need. I see your thirst. And so she gets that Jesus is not a normal rabbi. She calls him a prophet and begins to share with him what she thinks she understands about worship which is where we will pick up in the scriptures at verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and now has come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship Him in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah, called Christ, is coming, and when He comes, He will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking with you, am he. This is God's word. Now, what do we learn about worship from this scandalous conversation? What do we learn about worship? Uh, two things. The first thing we learn is what worship is. What, what, what is worship? Uh, the, the word that's used in this passage nine times uh, that's translated worship, is the Greek word that literally means to prostrate oneself, to bow low, to do reverence, to hit the dirt when you see someone of superior worth and value and rank. You see, this word shows us that there's two parts to worship. The first part is to recognize, to see the value and the worth and the superiority of someone. And the second part of worship, after you have recognized that supreme worth and value, is to assume a stance appropriate to that being. When I was in high school, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, I worked in retail. And uh, I basically got this job so I could, it was a music store, I, I just wanted to stand around and play guitar with my friends and get paid for it. And that's generally what I got to do. And then we had a change of manager. And what we used to do is we'd stand behind the counter, behind the register, and a lot of times we'd like be leaning back. We'd kind of lean back on the counter. I don't know if you manage retail, but you don't really want your employees to look slouchy, right? And so every time our supervisor came onto the floor, we'd pop right up. And we'd stand up at the counter and we'd smile. And we'd look like we were trying to work instead of jamming like we were doing just before he walked on, right? And so the thing about worship is it sees the superiority in the other and then it assumes a stance appropriate to that being. Worship is about seeing the worth, about recognizing the superiority of the living God and then orient, orienting my life around his worth. It's not primarily about singing songs. It's not primarily about uh, traditions. It is primarily a posture in all of life that I'm living my life in the presence of one 
who is worthy, who has value, and his superiority is above every other reality. Famous, the famous Puritan preacher, Jonathan Edwards, uh, said that if a person doesn't give his or her highest respect to God, uh, the God that made them, then something else will take possession of it. Something else will take possession of your heart. Something else will take possession of what you give highest respect to. He goes on and he says, something will have the heart of man, and that which a man gives his heart to may be called his God. You see, what Edwards gets is that we all recognize worth and value and assume a posture appropriate to it, but do we aim it at God? In fact, if you want to know where your worship's aimed, I would suggest to you some diagnostic questions. Just three questions to ask, what do I really worship? Where is my heart bent? The first question is, what do I lose myself in? That when I'm doing it, when I'm thinking of it, when I'm in the presence of this thing or this person, I, time flies. That's the first question. What do I lose myself in? The second is, what do I worry most about? What do I fear losing? What is it that worries me most? And then thirdly, when there's competing demands in my life, I most effortlessly give my time, money, and energy toward this. So what worries me? What do I effortlessly give myself to and what do I get lost in? These three questions often reveal where we are finding ultimate worth, where we orient ourselves to, in other words, what we worship. So will you pause and, and just sit with those questions for just a moment? And again this week, to ask, what really worries me? What do I really lose myself in? And when push comes to shove, where do I most effortlessly give of myself? See, these questions help us understand where we worship, what we worship. And so, that's the first thing. What is worship? It's that. And the second thing is, how do we worship? This passage also shows us how we worship. Look at verse 20 with me. Um, Sir, the man said, I can see that you are a prophet. Verse 20, our ancestors ancestors worshipped on this mountain. And you Jews claim that we must worship in Jerusalem. She's convinced of something, friends. She is convinced that her tradition and the place matters most in our approach to worshipping God. Mountains mattered most for the Samaritan woman. The mountain that most scholars think she's referring to is Mount Gerizim. It is uh, where Samaritans had built a temple in about 400 B.C., when the kingdoms between the north and south, Judah in the south and all the other tribes in the north, split up. They kind of localized their own northern hub for worship. And after the return from exile, the Samaritans kind of set up shop here in around 400 B.C. But the Jews, in a very culturally sensitive move in 128 B.C., came in and destroyed that temple. Right? And so this fuels the flame of racial tension between them. And the Samaritans did not recognize the worship of the Jews as appropriate for them, and so they chose their own place. In other words, tribal preferences and centuries of religious strife carried more weight 
than the object of worship. Our ancestors, but you Jews, our preferences, our centuries-long tradition carries more weight than the object of worship. And so this is the paradigm we're running into in this woman. It is a paradigm that says this, what we have always done is more important than who we adore and praise and align ourselves to. What we've always done is more important than who. And if we're honest, most of us lose our way in worship when mountains matter most to us, don't we? Are there mountains for you that sidetrack you in the worship of our God? The mountains of a certain tradition a certain song when I first came to the Lord, a certain place, a certain preacher, a certain preference, a certain style, a way we've always done it. That is one of your bigger mountains. Do you have a mountain that obscures your view of the one who formed the mountains, who moves the mountains, who levels them See, Jesus will have none of it. He doesn't let her remain captive to her history. Instead, he invites her into the fresh newness of what God is doing in the moment right before her eyes. Look at verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. The NIV reads, a time is coming, but it's, it's literally the hour is coming. The ESV hits that, right? And it is literally the hour. Why is this important? If you read through the Gospel of John, Jesus is preoccupied with and obsessed with the hour. At his first miracle, where he first reveals his glory in Cana and Galilee, in John chapter 2, his mom comes to him and says, Hey, they ran out of wine at the wedding. They need some more wine. What does he say? Woman, my hour has not yet come. Like, what? Like, Jesus is lost in thought about an hour. She's like, I'm talking about wine. What do you mean your hour hasn't come? That's another sermon another time that I can't wait for you guys to hear. But uh, this moment, this hour in John is a preoccupation of Jesus. The hour in John is literally the reference to the impending crucifixion and death of Jesus on the cross. See, the cross is the place and the moment where Jesus tears down the barrier between God and humanity where he says the work of atoning for, of dealing with, of forgiving sin is finished. Where Jesus replaces and literally becomes the temple. No place, no tradition, but a person is most important in our worship. Jesus is not only the one we worship and celebrate, he's the one through whom we worship Read John 2, 13 through 22 later today. John 2. It, it, Jesus it calls the temple his own body in this, in this narrative where he says, you can destroy this temple, but in three days I'll raise it up. And there's this little note where the disciples realize after his resurrection that he was talking about his body. Okay, so where is all this going? What does all this mean? Why does it matter? 
What Jesus says, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do. Salvation is from the Jews and the hour is coming and is now here where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Here's the first main principle of how we worship. We worship through a personal connection with Jesus Christ. We worship through a personal connection with Jesus Christ. Let me illustrate this two ways. The the first way is this. I was trying to print something this week. And I'm like printer impaired or something. I, I We have the, like two networks here. We have like office, which is what the printers are on. And we have guest, which streams music faster. And I was desperately trying to print something and it wasn't working. And then I realized I'm not connected. I'm not con- I'm listening to music and I'm on the wrong network. And, uh, and, and so the printers only work on the network that they're connected to. And when you want to try to connect with God, you have to connect in ways and means that he makes himself available. And Jesus says that it is because of the coming hour of his death that connection is possible. He says it's because of the death that I will endure, that I will undo the disastrous effects of sin and repair the relational connection that's been lost and undone because of sin. And so we have to connect to him through the means that he makes available, which is the hour. The hour is all about restored connection. A second way to think about it it would be like this. My friend Rick Colson is an elder here. He's like... like a genius nerd who devised solid-state drives and flash technology. Like, he had a lot to do with the technology that runs my computer. Like, I don't get it. And when he tries to explain it, I just look at him like, man, you're... You're a good-looking guy. Like, I, I got nothing. Like, I literally got nothing. And, and yet, I, I, I kind of, like, what if I came home from work, and I hadn't seen Rick all day, I hadn't spent time with Rick, but I had been working on my computer all day, and I said, Laura and I had the most wonderful day with Rick. My relationship with Rick is as it should be. I experienced the effects of his genius all day long. She would look at me like I was a crazy person. Right? Because it would be a mistake to think that Knowing the effect of Rick is the same thing as knowing Rick himself. That somehow to experience his effects of a solid state drive and having, being able to work on my computer without it having to boot up in the morning is the same as sitting across the table from him and having him laugh at my joke. And it's a laugh that occupies all of the coffee shop and it makes me feel like I'm really funny. Or, or sitting across from him getting wisdom on leadership or compassion uh, with my frailty. Uh, and so seeing the effects of God are not the same thing as having a personal connection with God through His Son, Jesus. And so we can be out in nature and enjoy His effect, but it is not the same thing as communion with Him. And that is what the hour is about in John. It is about the restoration of a personal and intimate connection with the living God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Do you guys see why this matters? This matters big time. We don't come to our gatherings and say, Oh God, I have nothing to give to you today. We don't mope into worship. 
Do you know what we do when we come into worship? We come in and we say, I have the Son. He is my offering. I offer to you the perfect worship of Jesus Christ in whom I am found and on whom I stand. And we come boldly before God through Jesus. Right? And we stand in Him and we say, I have His perfection. I have His righteousness. I have His surrender. And I offer that to you. We don't mope. To God, We stand in the presence and adore Him on the basis and on the grounds of Jesus' life and death and resurrection for us and on our behalf. Are you with me? Can I get some love? Okay. We worship through a personal connection with Jesus. This is the first principle. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 sums it up. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer a, to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. Now there's a second part to this conversation that helps us fuel the fire of worship to stay on track with worship, and that is that we are to worship God in spirit and truth, in the spirit and truth. Yet a time is coming, verse 23, and now has come that the true worshipers of the Father will worship in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but in our culture, when we talk about something important, when we talk about what's true or false or right or wrong or anything that's important, the language I've observed oftentimes goes to the individual and the emotional. And here's what I mean. We tend to say when asked, hey, what's the right thing to do in this situation? We say, well, I feel it's individual and it's emotional, right? So, or do you think God is like, you fill in the blank, well, I feel like. You ever notice how that occupies a great deal of our import into conversations about important stuff? Well, I feel like... Now, don't get me wrong. Feelings are not unimportant. Pastor Dave and I are launching a eight-week series next week on emotionally healthy spirituality and how important it is to listen to the stuff under the surface of our lives as we navigate our relationship with Jesus Christ and his church and his world. But many times the basis of our worship is not spirit and truth, it is spirit or truth. And here's how this plays out. Too often, I find that we reduce what Jesus' notion of the spirit to just my inward experience and feelings. And then we elevate those feelings to an experience over truth. In fact, what we experience and feel becomes our grid for what is true. It's true because I feel it. I feel it and therefore it is true. And so what I feel and what I experience is more important than what God actually has said and done. And this is worship according to the postmodern mindset. But equally as dangerous is when we reduce truth down to information and knowledge doctrinal correctness, and then we elevate those bits of information above actually having to live them out and have a real life experience of them as realities. And so truth replaces living in the spirit. We're more concerned about being right than living right. And this is worship according to a modernist mindset. Friends, we need a gospel mindset to permeate the way we think about worship. And so what does Jesus mean when he says worship in the spirit and in truth? Well, in John's gospel, does anybody know what truth is associated with? Right on. A little better than first hour today. And first hour is like, Jesus. 
Like somebody actually said it. Yeah, Jesus. Simple church answer. John 1. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We've seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Thanks, one dude over there. Jesus, throughout John, identifies himself as the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14. Those who listen to the truth come into the light. Who is the light in John's gospel? Jesus. That's John 3. If you knew the truth, the truth would set you free. Who's the one going around setting people free in John? Jesus. Yeah, okay. When the advocate comes, Jesus says, whom I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who will guide you into all truth and bring to mind all that I have taught, John 14. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Who's the word from the Father? John, right? Uh, Anyone on the side of truth listens to my voice. So Jesus and truth are inseparable. Are you getting this? And Jesus is saying this. He says that the true worshipers of the Father, that he's seeking worship in relationship to the Holy Spirit and to truth, i.e. Jesus himself and his word. Here's the mind-blowing thing about worship, friends. Here's the mind-blowing paradigm that Jesus is bringing. And that is this, that worship begins and ends with God himself. We just get caught up in it. See, true worship is an entering into the eternal relations of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's joining with the worship that's always existed, of joining the Son in worship of the Father, and the Father in eternal praise of the Son and Spirit. He draws us into this relationship of constant praise that exists among the Trinity and we engage it and are caught up in it. In other words, friends, worship doesn't depend on you. God didn't need you to worship Him. He created you to enjoy Him because He needed you. We're created for worship. We're transformed by worship. We desperately need worship. God already has it. And it exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And one day, all will worship. We'll recognize His worth. Philippians 2 says that we'll see Him and we'll bow and bend our knees. And so you can get in on eternity here and now and enter into the eternal worship of the triune God or miss out on it. And so that's great. And that's exciting and fun at 30,000 feet. Let's bring this down to six feet off the ground. First of all, how do we live this? The first thing we need to remember is that the Holy Spirit's a person. He's not an eternal, or he's not a random force of love in the world. He's not an inward existential experience of enlightenment, but he is a person. And you can resist a person and you can cooperate with a person. And the more open we are and the more available we are to his personal presence in our life, the more we'll find that the Holy Spirit connects the dots of the truth of God's word to our real lives. Um, does anybody have an old film camera? You guys, anybody still shoot with real film? No, right, why? Like, who, why would you do that? It takes so long. Um, no, but yeah, we have like a couple of film users here. I first started to learn how to do photography on film. And here's the crazy thing about film. It's like the special paper and it's chemically treated to be light sensitive. Okay, so the shutter opens, light comes in, and because of the chemical preparation on the paper, I guess... I don't really get this. Again, this is where I just look at photographers and I go, wow, you're good looking. I don't know how you do that. But anyway, it, it, it opens like this image forms on the paper. It's super cool, right? Now you just have an iPhone and it's like there's no magic to it. Um, but 
Uh, but it's light sensitive and it prepa- it's prepared to receive light. And when the light comes in, it forms an image on it. So here's the thing we do. We, we imagine our heart as the film and the spirit is this chemical treatment on our hearts, right? And so the light is God's word, his truth. And as the light of his word comes into our life, the spirit can take that light and make it personal. It forms an image on the heart. Has that ever happened to you where you're reading scripture and it's a scripture you've read before and all of a sudden it just comes in and it connects and it's real and it's personal and you've read it in a way you've I've never read that before like that. And all of a sudden it's God's Holy Spirit making your heart light sensitive. And so this is, this is the reality for us. The heart is designed for that. We need that. We need truth and spirit. And worship is always a striking of the heart, a striking of the truth on the heart made light sensitive by the spirit. Spirit and truth. We need both. But because the spirit's a person, the Bible says you can grieve him and you can also cooperate with him. And we can do this in our own individual lives and then we can do this together. So as we finish, I need to finish. We Let me just offer two disciplines for us as we leave. Two disciplines to help keep our hearts light sensitive, to be aware of the spirit and to be aware of truth. The first thing is we actually need a steady stream of truth in our lives. If you want an image on a camera, you have to open the shutter. The darker it is, the longer that shutter's got to stay open for light to get in. Some of some of you need to read your Bible a lot. Right? Open that shutter and keep it open. I'm just kidding. But Right? The, the reality is we need to actually apply ourselves and open up space in our schedule and space in our hearts to receive truth, the word of God, which are, by the way, God says are useful, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training righteousness. They're the breath of heaven to us. Hebrews 4 says that the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, can penetrate deep into our lives, judging our thoughts and attitudes. So friends, we will never have a passionate worship culture here without having a steady stream of truth in our daily lives. But we also will never have a passionate worship culture here if we only leave it at knowing some things about God. We also have to come with a heart that wants Him to make it personal so we can live it out in his power. This is the second discipline. We come in with an open and vulnerable posture to the Spirit. So scatter here, from here, from the gathering, making truth acquisition a discipline in your life. But gather here, making vulnerability and openness to God's Spirit a discipline. Uh, you can come and you can consume worship, which to which you will only be able to do one of two things. You'll either be able to applaud it and say, I like it, or you will be able to critique it and say, I don't like it. But if you come and you gather to worship, you will be able to come and commune with God, which is to say, I will give myself, I will avail myself, and I will receive and learn and grow and have an encounter with the living God. And one of the ways that we can do this is just enter the space with palms up. Defensive postures block the heart, don't they? What a palms up approach. Just do this with me for a second. Just get everybody get your palms out and throw them up. And think, what does it mean for me to walk into this space and go, Lord, what do you want from me today? What do you want to speak to me? What do you want to impress on me? Who do you want me to love and encourage and hear and give grace to and bless? 
Two disciplines. A discipline of hearing the truth and a discipline of openness to the Spirit making it personal. There's no maybe more concrete way to worship in spirit and truth than to gather together as God's people and take communion, to come to his table. It's this place where we recognize that above all else, we come to God as freeloaders with palms up. I don't come with my performance. I come with an open heart and receptivity to your grace. And we take the symbols of bread and cup that symbolize God's life that he gives to us, a life purchased with his death. In just a moment, as the band comes up right now, we're going to take communion together, but we're going to do it a little differently. Sometimes we create quiet in here, we create space to just sit before God, but sometimes we also need to create space where we come singing to the table, we come joyfully to the table. So we do this today, okay? We're going to invite you to come and hold the elements, and we're going to take them together in a minute, but would you come up? Declaring God's goodness as we sing together his sufficiency that nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ make us whole, clean, alive, and full of joy. Let's come and take the bread and cup as a community together.